yeah. We are ready to start with uh, God's Word that's going to be read. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 5, 18 through 21. And let's read this. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is precious. It is true in every way. And as we have had it read here, we see deep truths here that You have put into like a cave. And they're deep down and we have to go in and dig. But when we find those treasures, they are worth even more. And Your truth is so precious. It is what's left after everything else goes away. Your Word abides forever. And may we understand this truth about Your grace abounding this morning. It is abounding much more than we can even imagine. And it's much greater than all our sin. In Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. And we are Romans 5, 18-21. We've been in Romans 5 for a couple of weeks, or at least uh, the 12 through 21, I'll put it that way. And we're right at the end of the chapter, and you, you notice that we read 18 through 21. Four verses there. Uh, that section compares and contrasts just like what we've seen in verses 12 through uh, 17. And so 12 through 21 is all one context with the same flow. And we're thinking of Adam and Christ. Adam being the first federal head of us. He failed and we fell. With him, we inherited his sin. And what sin he did is what we get. And then there's a second federal head, that being the person of Christ. And... He, who, as we look at the whole human race fell, He dies and takes the place of the sinner that will be the justified one. And they will now have justification, no longer condemned, and will have eternal life. So a first Adam, a second Adam. And we know that we've been hitting on that really hard, but it, it's trying to relate to us that we have relations with our first head and the second head. If you're a Christian, you have a relation with the second head, right? But all of us, everybody who's ever been born also was in Adam. And so we know that there was condemnation 
in Adam there was justification by Christ and we are declared righteous by God because He placed us into Christ. We receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness which will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's where we left off in verse 17 if that sounded familiar. So we, we backed up and went from verse 12 now and we closed at 17 and, and now we pick it up and we finish this section. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to repeat the analogy of the first and second Adam and I know you're going to say, I already know that. But I want you to pay attention because there's much more than what's up on the top. We have to go down deep into this cave to bring forth this treasure. So stay with me, because I know that's going to say, uh, yeah, we've heard this, Dennis. Can you move on? Well, there's a reason why God kept repeating this and putting it forth in different ways. But it's going to take a little bit of a different turn, and it's not going to be turning so much as being different, but it's going to be doing something that's bringing us to the culmination of what's been said. And so we're going to look at the details of the magnificence of God's abounding, glorious grace. And we kind of hit on that last week, but we really didn't get into it enough. And that's why this section is here, 18 through 21. Our grace becomes larger and more increasing. And to the reader, what should be happening is that swelling. It's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. It's getting stronger. It's getting brighter. And that's what it should be doing. There is something that's growing, ever increasing, abounding, abundant. It is... Like fireworks. You've had a fireworks show that you've seen and it's been tremendous. And then it comes to the what? The climax of the whole fireworks display. Which just is, you know, the ultimate explosion. Well, that's what's leading up to here as we look at uh, God's grace. And I want to tell you, it's a wonderful view. Much more than any fireworks show that we've ever seen that was incredible. This is an ever-increasing, abundant, abounding grace that is so radiant and brilliant that it illumines against a black background of ever-increasing sin. And we have seen sin increase in our time. It seems like it has increased in the last couple of years, hasn't it? And it seems to increase even more. And, you know, in, a, in one way it does. But this grace is so overwhelming, overabundant, we realize how much greater is God's grace than all our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I have to think that was taken from this text. What do you guys think? Um, it's abounding. It's unlimited. It's infinite. It's eternal, this grace is. We're just now beginning to understand it a little bit more. Okay, so uh, we look at 5.18. 
So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. There's, we have our comparisons and we have our contrast. Here's our contrast. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. This is justification by grace, by one. One Adam, one man. The one, Jesus Christ, on the other hand. Condemnation in Adam. In Adam all die, and they're condemned. We've already seen that, we know that, but we're going to go back to 5.16 just for a moment. The gift is not like that which has come through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in what? Condemnation. You're condemned. You're judged already. And it's because of the nature of sin it came from Adam, from the one. And so there is condemnation. Now, let's go quickly to the second half of verse 18. So through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Who gave us the righteousness? Christ did, right? That one act that He did on the cross. One act there gave us righteousness. And of course, we'll explain that in a moment. It also is life, but we're looking at what He did in His act. Justification came to all those who are redeemed by Christ. And you go back to 5.16. Look at the second half of that. We left off with condemnation, right? But it says, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. What's the opposite of condemnation? Justification. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is gone. You're justified. You're declared righteous because the righteous acts of Christ are put upon you. And the very sin that you had is put on Christ. The free gift... That's eternal life resulting in, in justification. Okay, that's point number one. We're done with verse 18. Verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, this first half. It's very easy to uh, outline, isn't it? It's disobedience of the one. In the other verse, it was condemnation justification. Now it is obedience versus disobedience. Uh, the disobedience of the one. That's Adam. Adam's sin was obedience to God's word. It made him a sinner. And every one of his descendants, all the way to right where we're at now, are sinners because of Adam. That's the way it is. Okay, number two. Second part of verse 19. Even so, through the obedience of the one, and the many will be made righteous. Now we get... After disobedience, what we get? Obedience. You know what? The youngest of children can understand this. If they understand anything that if they've done wrong, there's a judgment that is made upon them. They, they, there must be a correction. And then, because they are to be, to, to be just, uh, to be right in what they do, to choose between right and wrong. And the next one here, they either disobey or they obey. Children understand that after they've been taught, they obey mom and dad. Most of the time, right? Uh, it's obedience. And this is what Christ did. He reversed the curse of the disobedience of Adam. And now, for those ones who are of God's 
this is placed upon them the righteousness of Christ. Theologians refer to Christ's obedience being twofold. And on your outlines, you see it there. It's rather easy. I, you know, when we put down the word obedience, but a lot of the Reformed theologians will teach about active obedience. And that's what we look at first. Active obedience is the life of Christ. Did He have any sin? Well, of course not. Was He righteous? Yes, and in every way. He obeyed the law and He did everything perfect. He never sinned. He learned obedience even as He grew up as a child. But He was obedient. So, in one sense, we are saved by His life. Because you see, that's where His righteousness comes from whenever it's given to us. He lived a perfect life without sin. He followed the law. If uh, you will look at Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Galatians is right after 2 Corinthians. If you happen to be around that area. Chapter 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, that's the way it was supposed to be, born under the law. He was born under the law. He had to follow the law, just like the Jews did. Only He was the only one that could follow the law. Because they all broke it, didn't they? So he did that so He would redeem all those who were under the law. Who would that be? People like us. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Okay, there's the promise. Do you see that His life was righteous? And what do you call that? Active obedience. He did it. His act was that way. Matthew 3, 14 and 15. Same thought here. Back to the Gospels. And this is the time when John the Baptist is baptizing and Christ is there and John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus? Did he really need to be baptized to show that he had been born again? No, he wasn't born again, was he? He has always been... He is the Savior. We must be born again, but at any rate, it showed his obedience that he was identifying with Man and John the Baptist saying, Who am I to do this to you? Who am I to baptize you? And Christ is having a public affirmation of really the, te the, the testimony here that comes directly from heaven. So he is baptized. Uh, verse 14, But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, he did what he was here to do. Then he permitted him. John the Baptist baptized Christ that showed that uh, as he's being identified, he's showing that he is the righteous one. And it's very rich in his meaning and uh, it is the significance of Christian baptism, isn't it? So, that would be active obedience. 
How many obediences did I said there are of Christ? Two. Active, and what's the other one? Passive obedience. He was obedient in every way, and even at the point of death, uh, he was obedient, and there was a time where he was arrested, tried, found guilty, put on the cross, suffered the sins, and that is the passive obedience. It's dealing with his death, ultimately. God's justice demanded that blood be shed and it can only be by the perfect one because He is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction to God, right? So because of His perfect life, which only He could do, He had perfect obedience and He also is perfect in His passive obedience as He is crucified. We look at Matthew 26, 39. And I do believe this is at the point where he is at the uh, Gethsemane, uh, the, the garden where he is praying before they arrest him. 26.39 And he went a little beyond them, the other disciples, as he went to pray and fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. There he is praying that uh, the Father could somehow take this burden away. He's going to have to take the sin of man. Your sin, my sin. And he's going to die for that. If possible, take it from me. Do you think that he really... I mean, he knew it was coming, but boy, to think that it was going to come on him. All of my sins I've ever committed and my nature was given to him. Multiply that. That's just one life. Your lives and all of the ones who are his, he dies for, right? And uh, so there he is at the, in the garden going through that. And oh boy, what a thought it has to be. Oh, somehow, Lord, if there's any way, take it from me. And we get First Peter 2, 23 and 24. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That really tells a lot about passive obedience, doesn't it? It's like a lamb led to slaughter. That reminds me of Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, one of the greatest messianic passages there really is in all the Bible. 53, 4 through 6. Check this out. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and also is for generation who consider that he is cut off out of the land of the living. He had a passive uh, obedience. Okay, the many will be made righteous. The many are the ones who are the believers. Those two verses we've gone through rather quickly, at least for me. Now, some would have the message and the, the message to be done. It's usually about, what is that? Was that about 15 minutes that we've been doing this now? I thought maybe I could take those two verses in about five or six minutes, but there was an introduction and we read the word and the prayer and so it's taken that long. Now a lot of people would say, and let's pray and let's go home. That's how quick messages are these days. Fifteen minute sermonette. But we are not going to do that today. Because really I have never done it. I wouldn't know how to do it. But I will tell you, we've been dealing with, on the last two weeks, the same subject. And Dennis, I've heard it. I've heard it. I know you've got it in my head now. So it's formulated with one Adam and the one Jesus Christ. Right? That's where we've gotten. Now, we move on. I think we've done pretty well. As we're already on verse 20, folks. Are you ready? We're going to answer a question that has not been answered. This is where all of this has gone to. And so now we leap into what I think is really just amazing grace and, and glory here. We've done two parts. We are on part three already. 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. We'll stop there. This is the answer that sin increased. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But grace abounded even more than the sin increasing. Sin increases in your Christian life. Not that you sin more but you see that you have sin, you sin when you didn't see when you sinned before. <laughs> and even as a Christian, you look back in those early days and now you're more sensitive to sin than you ever were before. Have you ever noticed that? It's because you're growing in Christ. If you don't notice that, you need to examine yourselves to see where you are at in the faith. If indeed you're in the faith. right? Check yourself. Verse 20 be- begins by mentioning the law. So why was the law given? The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Let's stop there. Why was the law given? Well, first of all, let's do a negative. It was not given to justify you. Because we know it does the opposite. The Jews thought of it differently though, and so Paul hits on this to religious people. As long as you follow the Ten Commandments, you follow the law, you do good works, you be good, you can go to heaven. 
and farther from the truth. And if you read Romans at all, how can you ever even arrive at that? It's the total opposite. The law is given not to justify. It can't enable you to follow the law. That's number one. Here's another one. I like to think on this one. It's not even necessary to condemn. Oh, does it condemn? It does. But did you know the law is not even necessary to do that? You can say, well, how, what do you mean? Well, you remember before there was a law, there were people before the law and they were still condemned. You can say, how can that be? Well, that's what Paul has already pointed out. He said it was because of Adam's sin. They're already condemned before they even break the law. They don't know the law, but they're condemned. And we see here that it's not necessary to even condemn people because they're already condemned. What's the purpose of the law then? Why was it given? We've seen the negative aspects, right? It won't justify you. It doesn't even have to condemn you. Does that make sense now? Okay. The law was given, and we see it right here in 20, so that the transgression would increase. God, what in the world? I thought you hate sin, God, and you want sin to increase? I mean, isn't that an incredible statement? Did God want more sin and He wanted it to increase by giving the law? Yeah. Well, why was the law added? Uh, why did it enter? You notice it says here in 20, the law came in. The law entered in. You might have different translations. Mine says came in, entered in. The word there, that's really a root that we really have to pay attention to, is para. When you think of parallel, P-A-R-A, right? What does that mean? To run alongside of. You have railroad tracks, and you have another set of railroad tracks. They run alongside of each other, right? Well, the law has already been given, and you know what he did? He set down, I mean, sin had already was already there, right? Then the law was given to run right along together with sin. There's a parallel there. And that's fascinating that it... it it's there, but it didn't cause sin. The law never caused sin. The, 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 the law actually is righteous. It is good. Romans 7 will say that. But what it does is it does something to it. What it did is it brought out the true nature of sin. It showed it for what it really is. Until the law, you don't really have a real knowledge of what sin is. But when you really see what the law is about, you go, oh my. So it does something. And I want you to listen to this. It was because of grace, because of grace, and in order that the grace of God might abound, that God increased sin. This is deep, folks. Because one would say, I don't understand why God would even bring it in in the first place. Well, it happens. Because man disobeyed Him. He doesn't tempt anybody. Adam sinned, we sin. We see it all the time. But what He did is because of grace, 
that he made sin increase. Martin Lloyd-Jones really brought this forth, I think, very well in his commentary on Romans. And he outlined it in ways, I think, where uh, will help us to understand the law increased. It was meant to increase sin. The law increased sin. Whenever he brought it in, whenever he put it alongside of sin, sin was already here, but now what it does is it magnifies sin. We gotta explain this. That sounds problematic to me. And I know when Paul said this, oh, the antennas went up amongst the Jews. What are you saying? And that's exactly why chapter six is written. And that's why you exactly see what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? So that grace may abound. Now that's that's why chapter six is going to follow. But right now. He's going to say it was. He brought in the law to really show how sin really is. Wow. Let's let Martin Lloyd Jones help us as he contemplates on that. The law came in so that transgression would increase. Number one. Well, actually, over all of this, and then I'll break it down. Number one and such. And I've got it on your outlines, and I think I have uh, a little part of it there, either, uh, either italicized or in bold letters. It says, law increase sin by increasing our, do you see it there? Knowledge of it. It increases when we see what it really means. A lot of people can know the Ten Commandments. A lot, of, a lot of people who go to church are meant to understand, or I mean to recite those Ten Commandments. And that's a good thing. I hardly recommend it. But also it is to be taught to tell them what that means so they can understand it clearly. What does it mean to have an idol for God? What does it mean to take his name in vain? You know, those kind of things. What does it mean to lie? What does it mean to steal? You can go on go on through all of that, but what it comes down to is that the law defines sin for us. I have that on your outline there. Uh, let's get a picture of that. We're talking about knowing what the law is, and all of these are going to fall under that little compartment there. Let's draw up an illustration. Even kids can understand this. Okay, children have the seed of sin in them, right? Okay. And what do they do? They behave sinfully. Not only do they have the seed in them, but they also act upon that with what is their nature. Okay, so kids don't really know, let's say they're one year old, do they really know that they're sinning? Hey, you're sinning. They don't know that, but do they inherit selfishness? I think that's one of the biggest problems of grown-ups or children. They're selfish. That's why the, one of the reasons why the world is in the way it is right now, because a lot of leaders are now seeing the great authority they have, and they don't want to give it back up. They have control over the whole nation, over everybody. And they like that, that falls right into the scheme of things. 
And uh, that's part of what socialism does. And only the very elite get the very best. And everybody else is no longer in a middle income, <coughs> middle society. It's either you're up at the top or you're at the bottom. And that's where most people are and the other ones get the goodies. Well, that's what kids do. That's just that's nature, isn't it? That's what they do. They need to be taught that what is right and what is wrong. And so they're fighting over a toy. The parents drill into them that they need to share. What a crazy idea! That doesn't make sense at all to share. And but they're taught that that's what you are going to do. I don't care what the other kids do. You're going to share. Here's how we do this. Here's what this is. You are not going to be selfish. So they learn that. And so it's like the law has been put forth to them. And so they now start sharing their toys. And you go, wow, it's actually working. Sometimes. The peanut gallery back there, would you please be quiet? I know, that's exactly what we're, we're saying. Hey, it doesn't always work. Or I know, Just keep at it. Don't give up. Yeah, you, they need you, to learn. You, sure, bet I did that with my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> what you do? Penny is here up here giving a funny looking face. <laughs> I know, because everybody else is saying, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, over time. I know that because you you share (laughs) and you still do today and by the way you're going to share your Jeep and you're going to let me drive that today yeah yeah your toy you know right (laughs) because of this message today That's good. That's good. Well, that's good illustration, right? Okay. So all wrong acts, though, are sinful, are they not? They learn right. They learn wrong. And uh, sin is only sin when we really see it as it really is, as it is exposed as transgressions to the law of God. So that's the idea. We're sinning against God, so when we are teaching somebody and say, hey, listen, yeah, that's you're disobeying me, but I want to tell you who you're really disobeying. And you're breaking the law of God. Now, all of a sudden, you start having authority. That's amazing. I, I watched Carolyn do that with our two boys, and you know, maybe the other way really was difficult. But whenever she said, you're going against the very law of God, God says this, and you're going against I'll tell you what, it got their attention real quick. There was an authority put behind it. Do you remember that, Carolyn? No, you don't remember that. They always obeyed in everything. <laughs> Face value. Face value. Face, yeah, right. So, uh, it defines sin for us. Now, that doesn't mean... People are always going to follow it, but it does come a little clearer. Uh, Number two, under having the knowledge of it, is law reveals sin's nature. And there went Bradley, Michael. He's just out of here. He says, oh, getting too deep for me. (laughs) To to the children. (laughs) Law reveals sin's nature. We've already seen that, right? Okay. 
Did you know, and here's where what you're coming in with, what it does, it provokes sin even more. Because, yeah, they might be obedient sometimes, but it actually makes one want to even sin more. It provokes it. Uh, it's against God, though. Remember that. David said in Psalm 51.7, when he is confessing his sin that he did with Bathsheba and also having her husband killed in battle, that... A year later, he realized he was convicted by the prophet and thinking on the very word of God. And he said, against thee, thee only have I sinned. We are breaking the transgression of the very law of God. So that's serious stuff. He was horrified when it finally came to his attention what he had really done. He broke the very law of God. So, number three, sin exposes, I mean the law, exposes sin's power. Did you know that sin is really powerful? That's nothing new, is it? Does it have quite a sway on us? Temptation comes and it starts saying, hey look, this is really good. You don't have all your fun taken away. This is good stuff. It's all right. And you're thinking, huh, really? Okay, well, that sounds pretty good. The power of sin. Okay, then you start saying, oh, I know it's a sin. i got to stop this. Okay, take a heavy chain smoker. He is very heavy, always smoking, and his loved ones around him now are really concerned about him because his health is really getting worse. And it's showing up. And they tell him that you need to get something done, you need to quit smoking, and you have a nicotine problem. And he denies that, but his health gets worse. He's told, you better go to a doctor. He goes to a doctor. The doctor says, oh, this, this nicotine's killing you. And you're going to die. You're going to die, matter of fact, probably very soon. If you don't stop now, you're going to die. Well, he says, okay, I guess I'll have to quit. So he quits. Those quitters become very good because they quit a lot. They quit once for one day and go back to smoking and then they go back uh, to quitting it for a couple of days and right back to... You guys know that story, right? Over and over. It's, it has a power over somebody. So it's, uh, it's a powerful thing. Well, he gets to the point, he tries to quit and he cannot do it. He is absolutely helpless. He can't do anything about it. He needs help. He has to stop. Folks, that's where a lost sinner is at. He's helpless. And he cannot stop what his nature is. Even he would like to be good. I'll get good. I'll get better. And then I'll trust in Christ. And that just doesn't work. It's a sense of helplessness. That's what drives people to conversion. When they get to the last straw, there's nothing left, and now they cry out to the Lord for help. 
they realize when they're convicted by the law that they are spiritually unable to change themselves. Cannot do it. It's impossible. And number four, law unveils sin's deceit. You see, a lot of people say, yeah, that's a sin, but uh, that's a... It's not really serious. You know, they don't take it seriously. It's They take it lightly. It's not a big deal. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah, okay. You know, you know. Or they deny it. It's not a sin. In the back of their mind, they know. They know. But, you know, there's a knowledge of sin that comes up and people can sometimes see sin as it really is. And they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, take this from me. Help me. By Your grace, Your mercy, I want to quit this sin. See, they start taking it seriously. God says, okay. It's called a conviction of sin. Holy Spirit steps in. You know what it does? The law shows that we are rebelling against God. We are rebellious kind of people. Interesting, you know, we're talking about, you know, whenever the law is put up, it's almost like you really want to break it even more. During Prohibition, which was prohibiting the legal sales of alcohol, back around 100 years ago, somewhere around that vicinity, it was actually illegal for people to sell and drink alcohol. That's what I gather, right? And uh, here's something very interesting. Did you know there were people that had never ever drank before? And so whenever the law came out that they were not to do that, sell it or drink it, in this case, drink it. Did you know those very people that never drank before and never really wanted to drink, now drank alcohol? Did you know that? That's incredible. The law came up, and guess what they did? They went against the law and drank and became drunks, many of them. The sale of alcohol actually went up, and they became stiff-necked, the people did. They actually broke a law now. The law of God reveals the stiff-necked nature within us. Okay, now we've talked about the law. Does that make sense? Uh, about the law increasing. So it says that on verse 20, doesn't it? The law came in so that transgression would increase. The law is there. Sin increases. And so there we have it. Where does grace come in? Well, we're right there. Right at the end of 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The exposure of sin. I want you to get this. Catch this. And you've got it on your outline. You might want to circle it. This really rang to me. This is great. The exposure of sin is an act of grace. Whenever God exposes our sin, and we've been talking about sin, 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 and guess what? Here's where grace comes in. It's a good thing that God gave that law that would condemn us. That's what the law does. It doesn't save us. What does it do? It condemns us even more. 
And so, it's an act of grace. God did not have to give the law. He could have just left us without the law and leave us in ignorance of what the law says. You read in Psalm um, uh, where constantly David is talking about the law of God. Psalm 119, every verse in that longest chapter of the Bible. In the middle of the book, Psalm 119, and everything is about the Word of God. It's about the law of God it will talk about. It's still the same as, as the Word of God. Um, you see, if He would not have given us the law, we're ignorant of really what His law is about. And it would never show our condition as it really is. And that's where we start with grace. Isn't that incredible? Thank you, Lord, for giving the law to show me what my sin really is. Have you ever prayed that prayer? That's grace, isn't it? He did not leave us under the wrath of God. Amazing. Now, under grace here, the law anticipated the gospel of grace. You see, just giving the law, it sounds like boom, boom. You should do this. You should not do this. Right? Over and over again. Well, even in that, even though it is something we cannot follow, the law was given at where? Mount Sinai. You have Moses there. It, there was a visible demonstration of God's presence. What did the people hear and see? They heard thunder. They saw lightning. It was fearful. It's rumbling and trembling. And he says, don't touch that mountain. Don't, you only come up so far. Don't, touch, don't even get that close. Back off. It's about the holiness of God. It's fearful of the law, right? And he say, well, what part of grace is in that? And, and God is saying, you do this. You don't do this. Do's and don'ts, which nobody can follow. They can't do it. Moses' law gave us Aaron, the priests, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. Oh, with all the do's and don'ts, he says, now here's what I want you to do that will get you back into the grace of God. You see, this is, gets them back into the presence of God. So they build a tabernacle and it's a sacrifice that they bring in there to please God. And what's it pointing to? The ultimate sacrifice, the cross. You go from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. I think we sang a song this morning that had Calvary in it, right? It's the cross. It's representing the cross. So the law and the cross are combined together. It's a good thing. Even when the law says no, no, and do, do, do. The law of God and the grace of God met at the cross. It's wonderful, isn't it? See, the law was satisfied because remember that act of obedience that we talked about earlier of Christ? He was the only one and He proved it that He followed the law. Nobody else could do it. And that's what the law was designed for to show you you cannot do it. 
How many here always follow that 60 mile an hour speed limit? <laughs> Especially when you're running late. Oh, just a few miles over, right? I know I can go so much. We calculate it. Oh, yeah. Breaking the law. Oh, we do it. We do it. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? God's wrath was satisfied. The law was satisfied. The grace that God had as His attribute was satisfied. Because He got to practice it there. And where is grace seen at the most? At Calvary. You want to see what grace looks like? Go to Calvary. Look up. Look up at the cross. You're underneath there and you're looking at Christ and what He did. Did you know that the law condemns the law of God and the grace of God is magnified. The law condemned our sin and Christ took it on even though He had perfect righteousness. He had to take on our sin so that we could be made righteous. Wow. So when you get to that, you know why we use that amplification word? Abounding grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded, jumped completely over it, miles over it, all the more. So I've got a note there on your outline. Superabundant, excess grace, limitless grace. Matter of fact, I think uh, I had unlimited, abounding grace as the title. That's what we're focusing on this morning. You see, abound means to overflow. It means to be more than enough. Phillips translation, which probably most of you aren't familiar with anymore and I wouldn't ordinarily use it, but it, it helps here. Where sin is shown to be wide and deep. Sin. Thank God His grace is wider and deeper still. Always. Somebody else said, where sin reached a high water mark. You've seen the high water marks in places like Jeff City. You know, hey, this is where the water was in the flood of 93. You know, there'll be a mark there, right? And you see, that is really high, really up. That's what sin does. I mean, it increases to the nth degree. We start realizing that. It's ever before us, isn't it? But here it says grace completely flooded the world. It engulfed it. As far as sin is concerned, it's a super abundant, engulfing, drowning flood. It engulfs everything. Just swallows it up. And that's what super abounding grace is. It's unlimited in the supply. God never runs out. It's almost like, hey Lord, you know, I'll take a little bit of that. I know there are other people that it needs to go to, but I need this. So give me a little bit. And he says, well, actually, I was going to give you a lot more than that. But you know, he continues to give and give and give and give. He hasn't stopped yet for any of you guys, has he? Has he ever stopped giving you grace? I don't think there's anybody here. Uh... I mean, think of the physical blessings and then go on and on with the spiritual blessings and my, he, he just, it, it is overflowing. And you go, how does this happen? Well, you see, 
It's overflowing. And when, where sin multiplies, grace immeasurably exceeds it. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1. Verse 13. Hey, is, this, is this making sense? Is it helping what I took as like a kind of a difficult passage? 1 Timothy 1.13. This is Paul. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He was a bad man. Saul was before he came home. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. God gave him mercy even while he was killing Christians. How does that happen? And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. There's Paul again. And with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus... It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's Paul. He said, no, he's not. I am. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul got it. Boy, was he a man of works. Boy, did he follow the law. And if anybody followed the law, it was Paul. And he was ready to tell you that. He would brag about it. He did it, man. I mean, he studied under the best. And he took it and he preached it and he was willing to do whatever it took to be that righteous Pharisee that he was. He realized how evil of thinking that was. His pride was unbelievable. You see, God did not withhold His grace from even Paul. Wow. He never withheld it. You know, Adam and Eve, they sinned. He didn't withhold His grace. Do you remember what they did? What they did? They ran. They feared God. This is it. We've done it now. God comes and pursues them. And then He gives some great promises of grace. The Messiah would come and He would destroy the destroyer. He gave them clothes to wear now because they needed that. He clothed Adam and Eve, but He clothed them with grace. Grace was given in spite of that sin that would infest the whole world. Mount Sinai, there's the law condemning man running right along with sin and saying, you're condemned. But in that, we see the priests, the sacrifices. We see the example here of Paul. How about Peter? He denied the Lord three times. And then shortly thereafter, after the resurrection, Jesus is out there fishing on the shore. And there's Peter. And he recognizes who he is. And then Jesus has a little talk with him. 
Have a little talk with Jesus, folks. It's amazing what He does. You know, Peter knew that He denied Him. He goes, oh. and Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Peter says, I, I like you. Peter, do you? He didn't feel like he loved God at all. He denied him, folks, and he, you know he swore when he did that. Peter, do you love me, Lord? You know I like you. Peter, do you love me? That agape love—it's it's what Jesus has been after. And what does Peter say? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus restored him. Is that great grace? Would we do that for somebody that's really offended us? Would we do that? I challenge you. See, this is not just a theological, doctrinal statement that we're making here today. What are we going to do with this stuff? Do we really do it? Do we go and forgive that other that they've done something to us or vice versa or both? Do we practice what we see because He gave us grace? All the more we should give grace to all the ones who don't deserve it. Wow. And how much grace does He have? He says, okay, I'll do that once. God says, no, it's unlimited. He just keeps on giving us grace. It's unlimited. It's not withheld. It's a supply of grace that never runs dry. Our sin just keeps on going, but God's grace just keeps on flowing. It flows, it flows, it flows. There's a full measure when you uh, came to Christ. Your grace will never be diminished. He doesn't love you any less than He did before the foundations of the world. He loves you with the utmost that cannot infinitely be described. That's the way that grace is. He just keeps giving more and more. See, it's always abounding. You know what? You as a Christian can never fall from grace. Now, what's God's motives of grace? Why would God do this kind of thing? People don't do this thing. Well, God's people should. But how? Why would He do it? What's His motive? Well, you see, He wanted to give us eternal life. That's what He wanted to do. That's a motive, isn't it? Does this show that God is good? Oh, God is good. Does He want us to perish? No. Well, are there other things? Yeah, for us to do good. You're saved by grace. And that not a favor of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Lest you boast, then he says, then he created you for these things to do good works. He said, you're saved by grace. You didn't earn it. And now he says, because of this, now do this. Wow. To do us good. Now, look at Ephesians 3.10. Why does He give us this grace? What's His purpose? Ephesians 3.10 Oh, this is incredible, folks. So that in God or so that in God who created all things Oh wait, who created all things? Verse 10 So that the manifold wisdom the multicolored 
wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about all the grace that's been given. Verse 9 says to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God and created all things. So now that the wisdom of God will be made known through us. That's why He gives us grace. Wisdom is to be known. Grace was to reveal the wisdom of God. And it would be shown to rulers and authorities. Good ones, the demons, and the good angels. Right? And that's what He did. The cross overcomes evil. He beat sin and all the evil angels, the demons, will know that when they look at us. The next one is in chapter 2, verse 7. Oh, this is great. After he says, By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only now, but all on into the future. It's called future grace that will extend forever and ever and ever and ever. Manifold wisdom of God. And now the very grace of God is seen in us. What a thought. What a thought. And we know that there's a reigning of grace. There will be in the ages to come Age, angels will look at us and they will be in awe and wonder. They'll be looking at you. And they, they're talking to themselves and they say, those are the saints. Those are the saints. The angels. They would say, those were the ones that were Involved in all the rebellion against God. They hated Him. They were enemy sinners. They were ungodly. Remember all those words? They were dead in their trespasses. But God loved them. And He had mercy and He shed His abounding grace upon them. How marvelous is His grace! And we'll say to the angels... You were right in all that you did in giving the glory to God in everything. You're the angels and you were always giving glory. We shall ever point to Him as the source of all grace. The exhibit of the exceeding riches of grace. And we close out in Romans 5, so that as sin reigned in death, remember when we talked about that? Even so, grace would reign through righteousness. We're talking about reigning grace to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reign of grace, and real quickly, this speaks of the kingdom of grace. This speaks of a kingdom. A kingdom requires a king and not just land but what? If you have a king you have to have subjects. And I think I'm going to be able to do this in two minutes. I want you to listen. Because I hope that you see grace even bigger than ever before. I hope that it increases in your thoughts after this. This came from um, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, also with the help of uh, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce. We're the subjects. God provides as the king for his subjects. Because you see, and we're going to go back before the foundation, there was a covenant between the triune God. And the covenant said that, okay, here there is going to be these people who sin, but some of them will be bought out, they will be redeemed. And I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring individuals to be subjects in this kingdom. The kingdom of His Son. Alright? So this is uh, what is known by theologians, Ordo Salutis. Latin. It's really very easy. It's the order of salvation. We're careful, careful with this, but it pretty well rings true. However you want to do it, there might be some that may be, may, could be out of order or they're all happening at the same time. But there are some here that happened at different times. Uh, we're going to do eight of them and we're going to do them very quickly. Number one, in that covenant, in the divine councils, folks, foreknowledge. It comes right out of Romans 8. What a passage. It starts with God's foreknowledge. That means He foreknows. It's not that He foreknows that you're going to be saved. He foreknows you. He has an intimate relationship with you before you're ever born because God is eternal. He's always been. He had some kind of relationship and He chose you right there before the foundation of the world that you would be in this kingdom. Number two, predestination is also found in Romans 8. And, you know, you're starting at verse 26 and then 27, 28, 29, 30. Incredible thought there. Predestination means to predetermine. This means He elects the ones who He's going to save and it's going to be Christ that He's going to put them into. And, and they are specific who He's going to choose, not based upon what they do. Speaking of specific, number three then is there is a, an effectual calling. These are two specific people that have been chosen. It's the call of the gospel. Foreknowledge and predestination happen before the foundation of the world. When you come into time, space, and matter, we are here and this is where we answer the call. We now exist the call of the gospel, it's effectual because it will happen. God ordained it to be. And it produces a believing response in those who hear it. And that's why you say yes. Because God all of a sudden comes in you and number four, regenerates you. And that's a spiritual quickening. You're now regenerated. You come to life out of the dead. Number five, you then repent and you have faith. You repent from your sins and you turn to Christ and believe in Him. This is all His work in you. And then what happens is justification as Christ, we look back, dies on the cross. He satisfies the justice of God and His righteousness is given to us. Uh, God the Father reckons our sin to be punished in Christ and Christ's righteousness is given to us. 
Number seven is sanctification. That means we... You don't see that in Romans. It goes right to glorification. But sanctification is what you do see in chapters in Romans. It's to be set apart. It's to be made holy. Doing good works. That's the Christian life now. Number eight. And this is what it's all about. This is the ultimate. This is where we're going. This is the greatest. It's called glorification. It's whenever, as we are made into the image of Christ now we will be like Christ at that time in eternity. We will be without sin forever. That's grace, isn't it? That's future grace. You know what? There's no more glorious unfolding of the kingdom of grace toward individuals right there that can be imagined. Can you go any further than that? I mean, that's the divine counsels of God from beginning to the end, or whatever beginning that we can think of, but He's always been here. This is the power of God that provides for us, actually saving us, and had He not done that, without Him we're certainly lost forever. God provides the way of salvation. He actually reaches out to us, turns us from our sin, He quickens us, and then draws us to salvation. And He leads us forever desiring to follow Him. The reign of grace, as it is said here, reign through righteousness to eternal life. The reign of grace, the kingdom of grace, which I just described, which took a little longer than two minutes, but it was overflowing bountifully. We are needy people, and He's the one that provides for all of our needs. Everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Grace is invincible. Grace is triumphant. There are no triumphs anywhere like this kind of triumph that is absolute victory. Let's look at this grace of triumph in you. Yield to it. Yield to the grace of Christ. Yield to that grace. Open your arms wide open and receive that abundant, abounding grace. And let that grace draw you continually to a triumphant Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, right now is the time to do that. Run to that grace. That's where you find your victory. And if you are a Christian, keep your hands out to the Lord and receive more and more grace. Let's pray. Father, great, holy, awesome God, Your grace is abounding. It's more than we can ever imagine and it's always greater than our sin. And we are never to take advantage of that, but I really haven't talked about that today because that's left for the next chapter. Uh, One would say, well, we just can't just have all that grace and, and then live like sinners. And that's right. But Lord, we make a point by stretching out grace much further than we can even imagine because Your grace always abounds. And so that's where we leave it at this week. Lord, thank You for bringing Your people here, bringing ones who have been predestined, elected to this wonderful grace for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.